This is a becoming creature. Hey everyone, this is Nick, and welcome to a new episode of A Becoming Creature. It is my honor to have as my guest today, Harvey Krishna. We discuss volcanoes, cultivating wonder, ecstatic dance, pursuing joy, psychedelics, travel, the Metatribe, and so much more. We hope you enjoy. Today I am here with Harvey, who is one of the most colorful, lively, insightful, and positive accounts that I have the pleasure of following on Twitter. He lives in Guatemala, surrounded by volcanoes, and often discusses nature, dance, personal growth, and friendship. Harvey, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me, and thanks for those kind words. Oh, it's my pleasure. So your handle is Harvey Krishna. What is it about Krishna that you identify with? So it's funny because the, the name came to me before any connection to Krishna per se. Harvey is sort of a mispronouncing of my nickname. This is when I lived in, in Vietnam and I introduced myself and someone heard me. Uh, I mean, I said my name and they understood it as Harvey and friends sort of started calling me that jokingly. And at some point, Harvey you know, side by side with Hare Krishna became Harvey Krishna. And the name just sort of stuck with my friends. That's sweet. Yeah. So I don't, I don't have a, a particular connection with Krishna specifically. I definitely enjoy digging into Hindu mythology, but I love all the deities, man. They all, they all reflect something different within us. So I had to choose one handle, but if I had to, you know, I couldn't choose just one of them to connect with. I love them all. That's awesome. In Twitter, you often mention cacao and cacao ceremonies, which I've never experienced. What does cacao mean to you? So cacao, I stumbled into it quite recently. When I started going, there's a, this beautiful lake in Guatemala surrounded by volcanic peaks. It's called Lake Atitlan. And I've been going to it my entire life, but in my childhood, it was always to, um, to one town specifically. And it wasn't until recently, now with friends, we started going to another town on the shores of the lake called San Marcos. And San Marcos is a sort of hippie backpacker, spiritual, like new age spiritual epicenter. You get... A lot of travelers passing through there, a lot of travelers, um, you know, who arrive according to their plans just for a few days and end up getting stuck there for weeks, months. Some people never leave. So it's that, wow. that sort of place with a very strong energy to it. And there, there's a bunch of retreat centers, meditation centers, yoga, like everything that you would expect to find in, in like an epicenter of this type of new age spirituality. And um, yeah, it was here that, that I stumbled into cacao, which is ironic because cacao, um, you know, this is a fruit that, that chocolate is made from, like the raw 
ingredient for chocolate. Mm -hmm. um, this plant is, is native to, to this part of the world, and the Mayans, thousands of years ago, um, you know, used cacao, they drank the cacao beverage, they used the cacao seeds as their currency. This was how they traded. Wow. So there's a lot of history behind it, but there's a little bit of a disconnect in culture between sort of the, the very ancient culture of the Mayans that, that is indigenous, original to these lands from thousands of years ago, and the culture that I grew up in here in Guatemala City, which you know, in some way would be more derived from uh, you know, a couple centuries back Spanish culture and the colonizers coming here. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, I, I mention all of this because it was a very... It was an interesting experience to, you know, already in my, I guess, early 30s, stumbling into something that, that is so core to, to the more ancient culture of Guatemala, where I'm from, and also interesting to learn about it uh, from foreigners, because it was the foreigners here in, in San Marcos, at, at this hippie town on the lake, that were really... Uh, diving into cacao and becoming super enthusiastic with it and using it to have these ceremonies um, before, you know, a yoga class or before an ecstatic dance. And the ceremonial aspect of it is really just coming together as a group. You know, everyone has their cup of cacao in hand and some words will be said. People will set an intention for for the ceremony, for whatever it is that's going to come after it. Yeah, more more than the, the cacao itself, which I do love. It's delicious and it gives you this really nice, soft, warm sort of energy. Um, more, more than those aspects of the cacao itself, I've loved how it's a way to bring people together and to, you know, sit in a circle and have everyone's awareness centered on, on one single thing and like through that really have this collective experience. And that's a really powerful way to begin, you know, as I mentioned, uh, an ecstatic dance would be the main thing for me uh, because you already begin the dance as a collective, not as separate mm. individuals. We'll touch on dance a little bit later, but tell me a bit more about this this ceremony and this what sounds like uh this new age disney world that you yeah. go to yeah. <laughs> so what is like how long is the ceremony uh what's the experience like um describe this place a little bit more it sounds very interesting sure so so maybe to to paint out a picture of the place first san marcos if we rewind even just 15 years, it was, mm. there was almost nothing there. Like maybe just a few huts, maybe 10, you know, non-indigenous people had moved there at that point. This would be like the OG spiritual people who wanted to get out of Guatemala City. Um, you know, much, much more like classic hippies who who just said fuck it to city life and mm. went to 
start their life there on this in this tiny town that there was nothing. Um, very rural setting. There's mainly just one street running through the town, and from there it's it's tiny streets and alleyways, and a big part of it is just uh, just walking, you know, alleyways in between the, yeah. the different hotels and restaurants and cafes that now you know a decade later have popped up. So so the main thing that started drawing people was one meditation center called. Uh, Las Pirámides, the pyramids, and they held these retreats. They'd go super deep into all brands of esoterica and mysticism, mm-hmm. and that and that attracted the first wave of of spiritual seekers, of travelers. People would um, hear about it mainly through word of mouth, and and as it happens with places like these that have a, a strong energy to them they become a little gravitational well and start pulling in more people and more people. And the people that come um, have their own things to offer. Uh, so now it's not just a meditation center. It's also places to do yoga. Now you have practitioners doing all sorts of physical therapy and energy work. And it's, uh, it ends up being a snowballing effect to, to what it's become today. That sounds really beautiful. Speaking of ceremonies, you've experienced psychedelics both casually and as part of a ceremony. How has your experience differed between the casual trip and the purpose-driven trip? Mm. Uh, Yeah, totally different. I'd say my first forays into psychedelics were uh, in college, uh, college in the U.S., and these trips were always... Um, recreational, you know, taking mushrooms with friends, uh, always somewhere out in nature, and and even though they were you know recreational, there's there would always be some part of the experience where you do have these profound insights and and you feel that something shifted for you and um, you know life seemed uh, it, it just felt rosier afterwards. So even without going into it with that intentional ceremonial aspect you still get some of that out of experience but yeah it wasn't until you know i guess i finished college figured that chapter of my life with psychedelics was over Mm -hmm. and it wasn't until like two or three years ago um in large part inspired by reading michael poland's book how to change your mind that it really opened up my eyes to the therapeutic potential of these plant medicines. And then last year, I think were my first experience really going into it with that mindset, uh, this time specifically with ayahuasca. Yeah, it's, it's a totally different experience going into it with that, that intention of, of going within and, you know, trying to work through things that you're dealing with or, or, you know, just surrendering to the experience and letting it uh, guide you and show you whatever it is you need to see at that point in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, that that part is super powerful. And so is doing it in community. You know, like you're, you're going into it with your own intention, but you're surrounded by a bunch of other people who are doing that as well. 
and that is super powerful like to have that feeling that we're all here together to heal to grow to evolve everyone's there to support each other uh so that that container really changes the experience at least it has been that way for me can you share a specific discovery or you you talked about there being a shift um can you talk about something that shifted for you through these experiences yes i think my the biggest one i've experienced was my second ayahuasca ceremony and this was the night after my first one because it was two back to back and and just to give some context this was last year and my 2019 was a very difficult and volatile year um because i had started and ended a relationship both very intense start and end um i had just left my my stable job of four years and sort of trying to do my own thing which was exciting but also scary to no longer have that feeling of a safety net below me and then sort of the the nail in the coffin was towards the middle of the year my mom getting diagnosed with leukemia i'm um, sorry yeah thankfully she's she's all good now we're we're like through that ordeal that's one but um yeah thank you but in the moment it was definitely you know uh something to reckon with and um there's no like no one teaches you how to process through an experience like that it's not something you learn in life and, mm-hmm. and to be honest i don't think i was really processing through it properly uh it was all just you know whatever fears and tensions and, and negative energies around this i was just storing them and locking them into my body So anyway this this is all sort of the the backdrop to in the moment when I needed it most that I felt I was downward spiraling through all this anxiety about everything that was happening that year um I had the opportunity to sit in ceremony um some shamans came to Guatemala from the Amazons in Brazil um mm. so that was really special as well to get to experience uh medicine and the ceremony in a very traditional and authentic way and the main thing that i got out of that second night was just understanding how i needed to slow down in in just how i do things every day like really slow down do one thing at a time do things gently and all of this with the intent of bringing that much more awareness and presence and intentionality into every little thing that I'm doing in the present moment and you know saying it now it it sounds obvious it sounds perhaps a little cliche it's uh the type of of wisdom that you'll find in any paperback book on mindfulness and meditation and so on but um it's often these these very cliched truths that that are the most powerful when you get to experience them 
with all their weight. You know, I think there's a lot of truths that because they've been repeated so much and perhaps in ways where people aren't connected to, to the weight and the meaning and the depth behind them, mm-hmm. uh, that they go losing that, you know, their, their importance or how true they are. And they, and they become these, these cliches, these panaceas that, uh, you know, you see, po- you see printed out on little motivational posters and what have you. Right. Um, but, but to get to understand, like to understand and more so to experience those truths in, um, in a context like a psychedelic experience is super powerful because now you're understanding it with like every cell in your body and it changes from being a few cliched, nice words to something that you're really integrating fully into your being. I agree that you have to go on your own journey of discovery um, to get through the most difficult parts in our lives. And I I think it's very powerful to take that process as an opportunity to slow down. And when you were talking about that, I was reminded about when you wrote that you accidentally exploded a Pyrex on the stovetop and (laughs) it shattered everywhere. Yeah. And instead of criticizing yourself, you were filled with awe and appreciation for this beautiful spectacle. And mm-hmm. on a, on another occasion, you talked about how you slammed a bottle of dishwashing soap on the kitchen counter and it erupted into these bubbles with rainbow accents. It strikes me that beauty isn't difficult to find, but it is easy to ignore. So can you tell us a little bit about how you personally cultivate wonder, what you do to keep yourself um, constantly in a position of being able to access that awe um, at any given moment in any situation? Yeah. So so those two examples you gave are, are interesting ones because both of those uh, were sort of moments that caught me by surprise, you know, with the dishwashing right. bottle, I, I just put it on the counter and, and I hit it a little too hard and that made a little, you know, a couple of bubbles pop up. <laughs> and, uh, and I think there's something about being caught by surprise by something that just shifts you into a different awareness, like all your senses are heightened. Um, so perhaps that's what what happened there that allowed me to sort of tap into the the beauty in what was happening the, the same with the with the pyrex exploding which it, it really looked like i don't know like fireworks going off because it was hundreds of little shards of glass uh mm. you know glistening in the light so so those of course would be a little bit difficult to to optimize for, let's say, because it's things catching you by surprise. Um, But the way I do it intentionally day to day is, again, going back to what I said about slowing down. Like one of my favorite things is just going for a walk. There's a park nearby where even though I'm still in the middle of the city, it's dense enough that it gives me that feeling of having disconnected from the urban environment and and gone you know deep into this little patch of wilderness 
and the easiest easiest way that I've found to tune into the beauty and the wonder and and little details around you is really just to slow down and um, it can be as simple as like literally walking super super slow and you'll be amazed at how much more you start perceiving around you when you do that uh, or like sitting on a bench and I'll just focus or sitting on the ground and focus on like a little patch of, of grass or plants and it, it always fascinates me like how much detail and how many interesting things we're missing because we're just zooming through life and zooming through our surroundings um, and, and being caught up on our phones with our thoughts. Um, In order to cultivate um, this slowing down, what a person really needs to do is kind of isolate themselves into a specific experience. And when you're sitting on a bench, you're not sitting on a bench working on, you know, some paperwork and waiting for a phone call. Mm -hmm. You're just sitting on the bench. So it sounds like a way to cultivate this is to kind of only want one thing, right? Mm -hmm. To just do what you're doing in the moment. And I think that's really powerful. So Tyler Alterman had a thread uh, where we flaunted our best traits yeah. And you said that you're a dance floor activator. You said, yeah. if there's none, I'll get it started. If there's one, I'll supercharge it. I inspire others to think outside the dance box and connect to the joy of movement and play. You mentioned about dancing earlier when you were in this, uh, in this new age Disneyland. What can you teach others that might be hesitant about dancing? And how do you... Invite others to improvise with you. Mm. That's a really good question. I think to invite other people into really going deeper into dance and and movement. I love using the word movement because it's more general. Uh, mm. I think it's important to think about how dance sometimes can carry certain connotations that will keep people away from it. Perhaps people think about choreographed dance or very stylized dance moves, and mm -hmm. that can be intimidating because you know not everyone has the, the, the body coordination or that sense of rhythm to, to dance with the beat, with the music. So thinking about it that way can be intimidating because within that paradigm, there is good and bad dancing, you know? And, and it's mm -hmm. good that that exists because uh, as a civilization, we've developed these amazing styles of dance and refined them and, and turned them into proper art forms. And I think that's beautiful and super valuable. But when we think about it more for ourselves and, and just connecting to the joy of listening to music, feeling it, expressing it through our bodies, uh, I much prefer to think about it as movement. Because all of a sudden, you got rid of this paradigm of dance moves and doing things in a specific way, and it being done 
well or badly. Mm-hmm. And instead, we've entered this new space where it's really just about free expression. It's great, you know, these ecstatic dances are the container in which they happen. They're set up in a way that, you know, helping people feel much more comfortable to let go and to move. And it's clearly stated that these are, you know, not non-judgmental spaces. Um, so, so just that, I think, helps people enter into a, um, a different mindset with regards to what they're about to do in the ecstatic dance. And then once they're already in the dance, I think the, the most effective way to get people to loosen up and, and move in different ways and, and enjoy doing it is through play and being goofy, being funny. Because if someone's up in their head and they're worried about how they're dancing, what they look like, what other people may think of them, if you engage them on the dance floor in, in a playful way, and this can be something as silly as, you know, all of a sudden embodying this like animal character, you know, and getting all um, primitive and, and mm-hmm. doing snarling noises. I don't know, anything, anything goofy and silly. <clears throat> You, you sort of show them that like, okay, I can, I can get super silly like this, you know, and if, and if you do it effectively and you get them laughing and smiling, like you've successfully broken them out of this, uh, this sort of freeze where they were getting stuck up in their head and, and through laughing, through, you know, getting them to follow your lead, you get them back into their bodies and into this sense of play. So yeah, I, I love doing that. I mean, I I sort of I've always been a, a more introverted, shyer person, or, or at least I was a lot more so when I was young. And I've gone through my own path of overcoming that because on the other side of that of that fear of, of opening up and connecting to people was always the gift of actually connecting to people and, and just how enjoyable that is. So the more, you know, with each step that I take forward on that path and the more I'm able to overcome my own shyness, my own barriers to connect and play with others, the most satisfying thing is to then turn back around and help those other people who are a few steps behind me. Because I've now taken those steps myself and I have some ideas about how to bring them along with me on the ride. So you talk about this ecstatic dance, which sounds like an excellent practice for exploring our ability to express. And now we're in this whole COVID-19, 2020, and uh, we're not really going out with others and dancing as much. But once the world goes back to uh, in like interacting what advice do you have for those people that are a little bit inhibited and they're hesitant to dance at say like a wedding or with friends at a, at a bar? Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any kind of entry point that they can hold in their mind or some kind of a motivation that can help them dance in the real world? Mm. That's a good one. I had never really thought about it in, in, in those other contexts. 
Mm. Oof, I think those those are tricky because those are containers where people aren't going into it with the same mindset or understanding or intention of dance and movement. Right. Um, so, so for anyone that's a little, I don't know, shyer with regards to all of this, it might be a more difficult container. Like if you're at a wedding to, to really let loose and, and get more comfortable with movement. Uh, which is why for me, like ecstatic dance is such <clears throat> a perfect starting point. And even if ecstatic dance can seem a little intimidating at first, mm -hmm. just dancing at home and like really practicing dancing like an idiot at home. And uh, most importantly, finding the joy in doing so, like just connecting to the joy of listening to music and letting your body guide you in how it wants to move and express what it's feeling with the music. Um, so, so yeah, I think, I think it's really just about finding where your edges, you know, where the edge of your comfort zone is with regards to movement and, and movement in social contexts and start pushing against that edge, you know, little by little and always connecting to play and joy. Cause that's the easiest way to go expanding that comfort zone. So you're suggesting people exercise this ecstatic dance, even if it's just them alone in their home, and that will allow them to explore uh, their their own embodiment and their own capability with their body. And it strikes me that what this fear is, what this inhibition is, this hesitance to dance, uh, what that really is, is it's, it's an attachment to the self, right? We want to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I wonder if uh, like non-attachment and disassociation is kind of a cope for that fear. And I think that cope can come with certain dangers uh, of dissociation. What advice do you have for people that want to cultivate healthy non-attachment, not only in dance, like you, you've already explained that um, we can explore our dance alone and that will give us some confidence but in all aspects of our lives where we have this unhealthy attachment yeah that's a good question um oof i think i think on one side of the coin we're trying to get rid of some attachment you know let's say mm -hmm. um we continue using the context of dance we have this attachment to being seen a certain way by others. And therefore we have a fear of moving or dancing in a certain way because we don't know how we're going to be perceived. Hmm. So that's the attachment that we want to work through and get rid of. How I used to approach this before, which it took me some time to realize was not helpful is that I saw the attachment as a bad thing and therefore I wanted to get rid of it. And, and that may be true, but it's not the best framing that we can use because trying to get rid of a negative thing is not as strong a motivator than trying to go towards something positive. So, so a big reframe for me was, Okay, let's forget about 
you know, these attachments and, and trying to like debug my system from attachments instead, let me think about why I even want to be doing this in the first place. Like what are the juicy gifts that are waiting for me if I do this? And, you know, those juicy gifts that I, I really connected to when I stumbled into this whole world of ecstatic dance is simply the absolute joy of movement and dancing and reaching these really ecstatic states without the use of drugs. And, and not that, you know, I'm knocking on drugs in that context, but like uh, they, they have their own role and their own use in certain moments. But to reach those ecstatic states just through a cup of cacao and music and dancing is super, super powerful. So that was one of the, the juicy gifts that I wanted to go towards. The other one was doing that in, in group, in community. And as much fun as I'm having dancing in, in like my own reality suit, my own body, it's so much more amazing when you then sync up with someone else, you know, and you're expressing something and you're perceiving how they're expressing something and it becomes, you know, this dance both literally and metaphorically in how you, you interact with the other person. So the more and more I went having these super juicy positive experiences, the easier it became to start pushing against those edges of my comfort zone. And the easier it became to, you know, slowly go letting go of, of attachments around like self-image of, oh, what are people going to think about me if I'm dancing super crazy? Because mm -hmm. I like put myself out there. I did dance super crazy. There's probably some people who look at me and think I'm weird. But then there's, <laughs> but then there's a, a few other people who love dancing and movement just as much as I do. And they're the ones that like, you know, will see me, see that we're vibing on the same wavelength and come over and we'll have this amazing dance together. And that positive experience ends up being the loudest one. You know, it crowds out any, any thoughts or worries about what those other people may have been thinking. Because at that point, I don't even care. I just had an amazing experience with someone else on the dance floor. By expressing your passion, it sounds like you attract your own tribe. And what this reminds me of is that someone once asked you what is best in life and you responded, uh, quality time with your tribe that satisfies belonging, becoming, and beyond. Mm -hmm. Can you expand on why that is the, uh, what is best in life? And can you expand on what belonging, becoming, and beyond mean for you? For sure. Oof, I think, I think there's a lot of things that, that are best in life. Maybe to, I'll jump to the belonging, becoming, and beyond. This is a, a tagline I borrowed from Sacred Design Lab. Oof, how do I label them? Sort of like a, an R&D consultancy group. It's a group of three individuals. They're all originally from the Divinity School at Harvard. And um, maybe like two or three years ago, they put out a report called How We Gather. And 
this report was all about looking at different communities, different groups in the United States, uh, things as diverse as CrossFit and SoulCycle to Boy Scouts to um, different service groups and looking at each through the lens of religion and particularly the roles that religion fulfills. Mm. Um, so things like a sense of community, a sense of personal transformation, a sense of collective transformation, uh, accountability, um, transcendence. So they saw that these are all roles or, or needs that religion used to fulfill back when, when you know, it, it, it was a more prominent part of society. And in our modern age and through the loss of, of religion and religious affiliation, people, you know, no longer had a one-stop shop to fulfill all these needs. And as a response, you started having them uh, trying to fulfill them in different places. Uh, and by the same hand, groups like, like these that I mentioned starting to fulfill those same needs. So anyway, it was a super interesting report seeing how, how everyone's sort of fulfilling these very human needs in different places if they're no longer affiliated to religion. And what grew out of that report is the Sacred Design Lab, um, where they look at how to sort of weave in elements like the, the true wisdom that is found in religion into these groups that may be non-religious. Um, and on the flip side, how to help religions uh, update, you know, how they engage with their people and, and update their rituals and ceremonies to make them uh, more relevant for modern day life and help more people connect to it. So anyway, that's, that's a, a long backstory to come back to uh, belonging, becoming and beyond, which I think really encapsulates the essence of of what they're trying to facilitate and, and also what I really connect to deeply, which is uh, belonging, you know, belonging to a community, really um, feeling like you're part of a social fabric that is there to support you, there to help you in your own growth. You're also there to help others in their growth, and, and that gives um, a richer, deeper meaning to your life as an individual. Um, I guess that, that plays into the, the becoming part of it as well. And then beyond is just having, having those opportunities in, in our day-to-day -day lives to connect to something that's beyond, beyond the mundane, beyond the, the ordinary experiences that we have every day. And you know, I think that's a very personal thing for everyone in how they, they interpret what's beyond. Uh, whether they call it God, whether they call it some greater divine principle or, or some essence that behind, that's behind nature and everything in the universe. I think how you conceptualize it and what you name it is, is the least important thing. And, and really what's important is just finding a way to connect to it and to experience it as often as possible. This dovetails into the time when you were inspired by VisaCon V to meet with 10 Twitter mutuals in San Francisco. Yeah. 
now you talk about considering the uh, the remote indie hacker lifestyle dream where you spend three to four months a year in different places with the Meta Tribe. Can you tell me more about your experience uh, meeting other people on Twitter and how you find the Meta Tribe energizing and why you might change your life to facilitate spending time with friends? I think one of the most fascinating things for me this year has been getting on Twitter and discovering all these digital tribes, uh, or, or at least the digital dimension of a bunch of other tribes. In my case, you know, even though I spend a ton of time in San Marcos at the lake with, with more of a hippie New Age spirituality tribe, mm-hmm. I, I love that tribe, but it's not a tribe that I can fully immerse myself into and just be in that one. You know, I think we're, we're very complex beings, so naturally no one individual or no one group, no one tribe is really going to tap into all our facets, all our dimensions. So I've always loved this idea of, you know, having one foot in this tribe and having one foot in another and being sort of a, a traveler in between these different spaces. And I think the idea of the meta tribe captures that very well. So it resonated a lot with me. And, and yeah, now being on Twitter, it's been incredible to, to just be in this space where you can so easily discover really interesting people. I think the corner of Twitter that we hang out in has the, the added benefit of this really open and friendly culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that has made the, the meeting people and connecting with them, engaging with them that much easier. So yeah, when I had this trip to San Francisco coming up, right away I said, I really want to take advantage of the time I have there to mm-hmm. to get to meet some of some of these characters, you know, like discover who's the the human being behind the anime avatars. <laughs> and um, yeah, I guess I'm I'm really just interested in continue exploring what Twitter can be. Because I went into it with a very sort of experimental open mind, like not knowing, not having any clear cut goals or intentions of why why I was on there. It was more just like, I'm going to enter this space and play around with it and see what comes out of it. So it has been cool to to experience this evolution where it started from just fucking around and being a reply guy to now I've met 10 super interesting human beings uh, face-to-face in San Francisco, and I guess looking forward to the future and thinking about how I can continue pushing this forward, it's like, all right, what if I find opportunities or create my own opportunities to bring a bunch of these people together and have the opportunity to live together, work together, because already so much magic happens in the digital space that is Twitter, by everyone mm-hmm. coming together and throwing their ideas out into the space and other people get to engage with them, uh, reply to them. And there's this very organic emergent ev- evolution that happens there. So if that's happening in, in this digital space, I can't even imagine 
what can be possible when you're sharing physical space, you know? And, yeah. And, and all the other ways of, of communicating and interacting that get added into the mix when you're face-to-face -face with someone. Speaking of Twitter, on Michael Kersey's show, Philosophers on Twitch playing Flight Simulator, mm -hmm. which I strongly suggest everyone watch, you shared your knowledge gained from climbing dozens of volcanoes. Um, on Twitter as well, you share a lot of photos of nature and adventure, and you're often discussing your experience with nature. I'm curious about your travels across the world and how you've created a relationship with nature. But why don't we start specifically talking about the volcanoes and uh, Guatemala? Sure. So Guatemala, you know, I'm so grateful to have been born in this country because it's such a beautiful land, incredibly diverse uh, in terms of geography. We have like 37 different peaks is the official list. There's wow. a bunch more if you, you know, count anything that looks like a peak. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredible playground for any nature lover. Starting around middle school, I really got into hiking and camping along with my dad. And we had a few years where like almost every other weekend we were going out to climb one of these peaks. Many of them are, are extinct, by the way, so they're more, you know, the remnants of what was once a volcano. Mm. But we do have three that are still active, and, and that is just an absolute spectacle to, to witness an eruption, climb it at night, and just see, you know, lava being thrown hundreds of feet into the air, or, or a lava river, you know, oozing out and sneaking, sneaking its way down the slope. So, yeah, I think it was, it was those experiences in my childhood that first helped me develop that connection to nature and I've always felt you know both the connection and also the need to, to spend time in nature it's really something that helps me stay balanced and centered and when I go some time without it I'll very clearly feel the yearning for it moving on from that of how I went deepening my my relationship with that the work with psychedelics and plant medicine has definitely played a key role. Mm -hmm. You know, ayahuasca specifically, there's many ways you can interpret what actually is going on. If it's just your own mind or, or if there really is a plant spirit. But regardless of how you interpret it, like the, the experience of it is very, it's something from nature, you know, and the visions that you have while in ceremony are all about nature. You see animals, you see plants, you're there in the jungle or some other natural setting. So I think I've carried a lot of what I had in those experiences into my just day-to-day -day when I go into these natural spaces and it's no longer just uh, an environment that's beautiful and stimulating. Mm -hmm. um, but now I try to like connect to this deeper layer of it, um, just understanding, you know, life and how everything is connected, and that's been super special because it's, you know, each time I feel like the deeper I get to connect with nature, the more nourishing the time that I spend in it becomes. Mm. 
So you've lived in Vietnam, you lived in South Korea, you lived in America. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've gained in your travels? I think the biggest thing to be gained from living and working somewhere that is not where you grew up in, especially if it's a drastically different culture, is the experience of popping out of your reality bubble. Mm. You know, your corner of culture and social norms, which in a large way can be invisible. It's just sort of there in the background and, and we grow up in it. We, we almost absorb the, the implicit rules of what's good, what's bad, what's normal, what's weird. We don't always see how all of that is fabricated. And many times it's completely arbitrary. So then you go to another country. Like for me, moving to Vietnam was, was the biggest shock. It was my first time in, in Asia and the culture was just so different. And I was seeing so many things that would be considered strange back here in Guatemala or, or in the U.S. And, and over time, you just go realizing that that's the way people do things somewhere else. And it's not necessarily better or worse than anywhere else. It's just you know, how things evolve there. And with enough of these experiences, you realize just how normal is a myth. It's totally in our hands to, to craft our own way of, of living, of doing things that isn't dependent on buying, you know, one cultural system wholesale. Uh, I much prefer to, to sort of dine a la carte where from all these travels around the world, I've definitely become exposed to different habits, different rituals, different ideas. And I sort of go cherry picking what I like the most. Finally, uh, you have a lot of books. And uh, <laughs> to people that resonate with what you're saying, but are new to a lot of these ideas, can you talk about which books were the most personally impactful and which you suggest or gift most often? Ooh, so many. I mean, for me, one of my, my Bible, so to say, is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, mm -hmm. uh, which I know is pretty well known in, in these circles. That one I read fairly, out of, like, fairly recently out of college. Um, so I still hadn't stumbled into this more hippie, shamanic culture that I love to dabble in now. Mm -hmm. So I think for that, you know, I don't have, I don't really have any great answers with that part. And, and I feel bad because I don't want to like cheat out of the question of recommending books. <laughs> um, but I do feel that just going for primary experiences can be so much more powerful than than reading about something. Give me an example of a primary experience you think people should experience. So everything we were talking about dance, you mm -hmm. know, I, I don't even, I don't even know if there's any books out there on like this type of movement or, right. or ecstatic dance. There probably is more coming from the angle of, of theater, but yeah, no amount of reading is going to help you understand the absolute joy and juiciness of just letting loose on a dance floor. 
and and honestly that's that's all you need you know there's there's many things like this where if you just throw yourself into new experiences mm -hmm. and you and you do so with a lot of like mindfulness and, and awareness of, of how you're experiencing it what's going on in you in your body um, and always very clear on, on the intention of why you're doing this those can be your your books in a way you know like those experiences can just teach you so much and teach you in a way where the lessons really get integrated deeply so yeah that that for me has really changed how i relate to books because before whenever i wanted to understand a new thing or or sort of like dive into a new concept a new idea my first instinct was always find a book on it and read it and i think that's still a really good instinct because it can of, often like point you in the right directions but in terms of the actual learning and, and growing i've really shifted towards experiencing things directly um like don't over practice leaving your mind and putting yourself somewhere else but spend more time embodied and i feel like yeah yeah especially over here where everybody is like oh i'm trying to read all these books but i don't have enough time to read all these articles right and then so their top priority is consuming information and then you know maybe they're spending 10 minutes a day meditating and that's their entire habit of um of getting to know themselves 10 minutes out of the day which is it's better than nothing but it's it's not a lot so you're just saying kind of the knowledge that you get from books is is useful but the diet needs to be balanced with experience yeah absolutely and and of course this depends a lot on what uh what it is you're trying to learn what it is you're trying to gain from seeking knowledge and, and experience and so on like if you want to learn how to build a rocket and shoot it to mars absolutely you're going to need to read some really <laughs> thick and heavy books right. but but if we stay more in the context of understanding ourselves better understanding other people better our relationships to them uh nature a relationship to it our place in the world these sorts of things I used to approach all of this through books and I definitely learned a lot. Like I think getting that initial exposure to, to many different systems of thought mm -hmm. is definitely important, but rapidly you'll have diminishing marginal returns on it mm -hmm. because so much of this understanding has to happen in an embodied state. And when you're reading a book, it's, thoughts that are encoded in these words on the pages that then enter your mind and you're understanding them intellectually, but not necessarily integrating them into the depth of your being. That for me has been the most important shift, um, all thanks to stumbling into, into this hippie subculture, where I finally understood how I had to put a pause to all this mind activity, understanding ideas, acquiring knowledge, and now shift to integrating it, understanding it with my whole being. Uh, otherwise, you just become this, this repository of ideas and knowledge and don't get any of like the, the, the 
juicy stuff that we're really going after, you know, just like feeling so much more comfortable in our own skin, uh, feeling much more open to connect with other people, feeling connected to a community, to our, our place in the world. I think ultimately that's what a lot of us want and what a lot of us may be looking for in, in reading books or, or seeking knowledge in other ways. But ultimately, we do need to reach that point where it's time to work with with the body and with the emotions and the whole system as one. And that means putting the book down. <laughs> well, I think I think you perfectly encapsulated uh, the whole message of everything you're talking about. And I really loved hearing about dance and your experience with psychedelics uh, and friendship and community and um, personal embodiment and healing and how all these things create a network of understanding and experiencing the world. Um, I think this has been really valuable and thank you so much for coming on to the show. I, I really loved it. Yeah, thank you for, for the opportunity. I really enjoyed uh, going a little bit deeper into into all of these things that I'm often sharing on Twitter. I really loved hearing from Harvey. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe to future episodes on becomingcreature.substack.com, where I also post show notes. You can find Harvey on Twitter at Harvey Krishna underscore. You can find me on Twitter at Becoming Critter. Feel free to say hi. I'd love to hear from you. Our intro music was made by Frank Ivy and Murphy Chicken. This has been A Becoming Creature, and we hope you enjoyed. <laughs>